Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. What great truths for our life, for our lives this morning. This morning, we're going to be talking and studying the book of Acts again, chapter 18. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 18. And we're not going to cover all the chapter, but we're going to look at the first, I believe, 18 verses. And we're going to be looking at it from this perspective and this truth. When we are weak, when you and when I are weak, God is strong. When you and I are weak, God is strong. That's kind of the framework from which we will be looking at Acts chapter 18 this morning. And so uh, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read from the text this morning. And as you stand with me, before we read from Acts 18, I want to invite you to say the Shema with me. And I don't have it on the screen today, but if you repeat this after me, that'd be great. Repeat this after me. This is kind of the central teaching of all of Jesus' teachings. He says, when asked what the greatest commandment is, he responds with this. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. These are the very words of God, Acts chapter 18. After this, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and being of the same occupation, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they resisted, and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own hand, heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he, he believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. This man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of crime or of moral evil, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are your questions about words, names, and your own law, see, it, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. 
So he drove them from the judge's bench. Then they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Galileo. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us. Thank you for how it encourages us and strengthens us as disciples of Jesus. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak. God, I pray that my words and our words today that, that, that we have throughout our morning would not be words of human wisdom, but would be words filled with the Spirit's power so that we might teach and admonish one another, helping one another to follow you with more of our heart, soul, mind, and our strength. We give you all praise, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the freedom that we're able to stand in his name, that we're able to read your word, that we're able to have life and liberty in this country. And even God, today we pray for believers scattered across this world who might be opening the text today and do so to the detriment of their very lives. And God, we pray that you would strengthen them and that the word of God would go forth with great power by the working of your spirit in their midst. For the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Chapter 18, verse 1, we find this. After this, after this, Paul goes to Corinth. He, he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth but, Corinth. but when you see a phrase like after this, it's good to be reminded of why is that there. Remember, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, this will be a little bit of a, of a reminder or kind of a revisit of Paul's journeys. We're in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and he's come through the area of Macedonia. He's, he's, he was unsure of where to go. He's praying to God. He says, God, can I go here? The Spirit says no. He says, God, can I go here? The Spirit says no. Finally, God comes to him in a dream with the Macedonian man. He says, Paul, I want you to go. I want you to proclaim the good news throughout Macedonia. Um, here's a chart of, of the mission impact that Paul had. David, could you put that up there? The method and the message of Paul's ministry was this, to proclaim the promised Messiah who would be a sin bearer for the people. That Messiah is Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. We're not looking for another one. He is here. He's been crucified, but he is risen. Both of those are central truths of the Christian faith. And then number three, Jesus is now offered as king, Messiah, and Savior. But when Paul goes to various areas, next slide, David, we find this. He goes to Philippi, and the reaction and the result of this is, is Lydia's one, but, but it doesn't tell us with great detail how many people came to faith. Certainly, the jailer and all of his household came to faith, but, but we're not sure exactly how many. Quickly, he goes on to Thessalonica, all right? He goes to Thessalonica, and it, some accept, but there's great opposition to the word. And he takes a flight, not a literal flight, but he goes quickly to Berea. He goes to Berea. Many people accept, all right? A very, very prolific ministry that he has there. But his ministry there is cut short because the same Jews that opposed him in Thessalonica heard that he was preaching in Berea, and they come down there to oppose him again. He leaves, 
but his, his, um, his fellow co-workers in the gospel, Silas and Timothy, stay in Berea. Paul goes to Athens by himself, quickly. Um, we get to Athens, and there is no Jewish response, all right? We get to the end of chapter 17. Paul leaves the presence of the Areopagus, the, the, the leaders of the ruling council, people who judged matters of religion and law and culture. And, and it says that Paul left the presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There, there, there's no notable, significant Jewish response. And so the message keeps going forth to the Gentiles. And that's what we find in Corinth. Paul addresses the synagogue. He, he, he reasons with people, but they essentially say, we want no part of this. There's bitter opposition to the message of the gospel. So much so that Paul says, he shakes his robe, a very Jewish thing to do, to kind of separate yourself from them. He says, I am no longer responsible because you are unwilling to hear the message I'm proclaiming. He says in verse 6, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, so that's kind of where we've, or how we've gotten where we are. Um, here is a photo of Athens to Corinth to just kind of help give you a place uh, to, to, to orient yourself. Athens is in the southern part of Greece, the southeast part of Greece. And he could have taken either the land route or he could have taken a ship to go over to Corinth. Corinth is a significant city in the first um, century. It's actually significant even before the first, first century. Um, Corinth is a, a seaport town on a three and a half mile stretch of land. Um, it comes at a very important point because if you can kind of see that little bridge of land between those two gulfs of water, that was an important trade route. Instead of trying to sail your ship all the way around the islands of Greece in order to get something from the north to the south, at Corinth, you could take things across a land bridge, essentially, that they had built. If you go there today, there's actually a, um, there's a canal that's dug, and, and it's pretty cool. You stand on top of it, and it's just this long canal, cliffs on both sides, that ships can go down. But in the early first century, uh, actually before the first century, uh, first century BC in 169, no sorry, 146, Corinth, which was a very bustling town, lots of commerce, lots of trade, was destroyed by a Roman general named Mumias. And it was virtually untouched for about 100 years until Julius Caesar, whose name you might know, um, in 46 BC rebuilds this city and it regains the prominence that it once had. All right, a little bit of kind of details about Corinth to help you maybe understand what, what's going on there. So, so Paul leaves Athens. He produces some disciples, but the Messiah Jesus is a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. Here's another kind of um, photo. You can, you can see the Gulf of Corinth on, on your right. You can look over to Chentre. That is a port city. And then the Corinth Canal is right there. All right. Um, that's all tied to mainland Greece, kind of, kind of an important location in the first century. Here I mentioned like the land bridge. It's called a diolkos. Here is what in ancient times they would have either drug smaller ships across to go from one gulf to another, or they would have unloaded ships cargo on one side, moved it to the other side. The point I want you to get is this, 
there's a lot of people in and around the city. It's a bustling city, and, and it's a city um, that was very cosmopolitan. There was incredible wealth, culture, and commerce. Um, like I said, in the time of Paul, about 50 AD, uh, scholars reckon that he is here. It's governed by the Romans, and it's known actually for its vast immorality. Um, several temples were used for various worship of idols. For example, the, the, the biggest one you have is the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and it commands the city from a perch on the Acrocorinth. David, the next slide would be great. Here's a, a photo of that. The Agora is the place in the foreground, and that's kind of the marketplace. And then that big 1,900-foot hill in the background is called the Acrocorinth, and that is where the, the Temple to Aphrodite is located. And at various points throughout history, scholars estimate that there is a thousand or more temple prostitutes that kind of go back and forth between the city and the Acrocorinth. Part of the pagan worship of this time involved improper um, physical acts. We'll leave it at there. Um, that was not the only temple, though. There were other temples in this area. For example, there, there was a temple to the sun god Apollo, the patron god of the city. There's also another temple to Asclepius, who is the Greek god of healing. One of the things we learned about Athens is it's a very religious city. Corinth is also very religious, but it's different than Athens in that Athens is kind of the intellectual um, capital of the ancient world. Um, the Agora and the Acrocorinth are, are, are views that Paul would have seen regularly as he walked in and throughout the city. Paul stays in Corinth 18 months, and what we get in the book of Acts is the beginning of his ministry there. Right? This is the first time he set foot into Corinth, and, and we pick up a few things about what life was like for him uh, both there and also in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, the Agora here is, is the center of social life. And um, actually, the city of Corinth was so pagan that the phrase Corinthiazo meant to be immoral. If you were termed a Corinthian or, 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 or that you had a Corinthian lifestyle, it meant that you led a very immoral, both sexually and otherwise, lifestyle within your culture. Uh, the city of Corinth could maybe be considered an ancient version of what some people term sin, sin city. Uh, some place that is known by wickedness and by wicked acts. Now it's interesting, Paul leaves Athens, a very pagan city, and he goes not to a better place, not, not to somewhere that's more righteous or, or more holy, he goes to somewhere that's just is in need of a savior. He goes to Corinth. He, he, he doesn't go to a more family-friendly spot. He proclaims the gospel in Athens, and then he goes, and in verse 4, we find him again in the synagogue, this time in Corinth, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. He finds himself uh, doing this, which is a part of his ministry. Paul recognized a truth that I think is helpful for us to remember. The only solution to sin is Jesus. And whether the city is Athens, whether the city is Berea, whether the city is Jerusalem, if you are apart from Jesus, you need Jesus. And so he continues preaching, and he continues being a light amidst a dark place. 
Light is never called to flee from darkness. It's called to shine for Christ in and where it is. Wherever God places us, that is the place that we are to shine. In Corinth, one scholar says, Paul witnessed the triumph of God's grace over greed and lust because in his 18-month time there, he saw people who once lived a very anti-God lifestyle be changed by the message of the gospel, and God continues to transform them into people whose lives are marked by holiness, whose lives are vastly different than the culture around them. There are people who are marked by the works of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which in a dark world, a world that is centered on self, and a world that is centered on pleasure, and a world that is centered on what can I get out of this, how can I make more money, how can I be about what I want to be about, to to have a Spirit-directed life is a light that shines in the darkness. I don't know about you and and the the paths that you walk and the businesses you're in and the relationships that you have, but as you think of your life and as you walk into this next week, what will people see? What will people see? Will people see speech characterized by grace and truth? Will people recognize a spirit of humility in your life? Will people see that your life is characterized by obedience to God in the big things and in the small things? To be a light for Christ means faithfully resting in his promises and following him in in faithfulness so that people would see Christ, not ourselves. So Paul goes to Corinth And we find in verse 2 that it's interesting, the order of this. He leaves Athens, goes to Corinth, verse 1. Verse 2, he finds a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul comes to them. We find out that they're the same occupation. He stays with them, and he works, for they were tent makers by trade. We, we find out about Aquila. Uh, we find out a lot about Aquila and Priscilla in this bit, um, and, and it's important. When, when Paul goes to Corinth, he finds people. Remember, Paul has been alone from the time he left Berea. Some men take him down to Athens, but then they leave. They go back up to Berea, and Paul's in Athens all by himself. And, and just remember what Paul has been through: beatings getting kicked out of one city, getting kicked out of another city, speaking to the, the intellectuals in Athens, not being heard there. He's, he's beaten, he's torn down. He doesn't perhaps have much left. And he comes, and in verse 2, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Now, Aquila and Priscilla are, are, are interesting people. The text tells us that they were um, expelled from Rome. And the reason they were expelled is because under the reign of Claudius, there had been a dispute about a man named Christus, Christ, and, and all the Jews were expelled. Um, much like you find later in, in this narrative, there's, um, there's people who go before the Roman ruler and they say, um, would you kind of judge between us? And the Roman ruler in this case, he says, no, I don't want to judge between you. Claudius said, I do not want unrest in my empire. 
all Jews get out. That means Jewish believers in Jesus and Jewish not believers in Jesus. And so, and so um, Aquila and Priscilla are, are having to flee from Rome because of this civil disturbance, because of the dispute about Jesus. Now, we don't know whether at this point in their life, whether or not they are followers of Jesus. The, the text isn't terribly clear, but, but as I read it, I think if they hadn't known Jesus, Paul would have been first order telling them about Jesus, sharing the good news of Jesus the Messiah. I, I, I think when they come here that they are probably followers of Jesus, which means they have even more in common with Paul. I mean, they're already tent makers, which means they build tents for people to dwell in and, and such. Um, they've already been kicked out of a, of a city, which Paul has a little bit of experience with. And they, they come here and they, they quickly find companionship with Paul. They're together all the time. They have the same occupation. He works. He stays with them. And just imagine, you've come to Corinth, and you've had a really tough life the last six months to a year. And you find people. You're alone, and you find people who are of the same heart, the same skill. You immediately have a bunch of stuff in common. I think one of the things that God does here is God brings encouragement to Paul through people. Now, um, they're tent makers. They're leather workers by trade. I mentioned Corinth is, is kind of a big city at this time. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And one of the things that Corinth is known for is the home of the Isthmian Games. All right, This is a festival uh, that, that's held every two years in honor of Poseidon, Neptune. It's kind of... Same, same God, different names. Uh, Poseidon and Neptune, which was the god of the sea. And so many scholars uh, suggest that this brought many visitors to Corinth and that provided a need for tents. And so Paul goes and he immediately finds work. He, there, there's tents to build. There's people to give lodging to and housing to. But then Paul, on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, which means there's a, there's a significant enough Jewish population for there to be a synagogue. And he shares Jesus with the Jewish people and also with the Greeks. But I love it that he finds people who know what it is like to be pushed out. He, he finds people who know what it's like to experience persecution and have to flee. People who are of the same cloth. They've got their Jewish heritage. They've got uh, their background and occupation together. They immediately build a relationship that we will see in the rest of the text, God willing, throughout the course of time, um, how this relationship between Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla just deepen and grow. Now, how does Paul arrive in Corinth? Um, one of the things that's not mentioned in Acts, but it's mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians, is, is the mental, emotional, physical state that Paul arrives in Corinth. Would you turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a couple pages to the right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we read part of chapter 1 last week about the message of the cross being foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. But in chapter 2, he continues on talking about the wisdom of God, but he also describes how he comes to the Corinthian church. 
Notice with me verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you. All right? He's referring to the first time when he came from Athens over to Corinth. He says, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now, if you remember, in Athens, he had been arguing with wise philosophers and having his, his um, life being kind of picked apart. So essentially, the, the philosophers and wise people in Athens were saying, you just like to pick this and this and this and this. When he comes to Corinth, he does not come announcing the testimony of God with brilliance of speech or wisdom. He has experienced that. He's experienced the, 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 the hill where people gather to just hear new ideas and to be engaged by the latest philosophy of the day. He doesn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Rather, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, there is one message and one message that matters deeply for Paul. You can talk about all the philosophy you want in the world, but if you don't talk about Jesus, who was crucified and who was raised to life for our sin, that is the cornerstone of his message. He's like, this is going to be foolishness to the Greeks, and it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews, but this is the message. This is what we must proclaim. He says in verse 3, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. What a way to send out a missionary, right? Weakness, fear, and much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. Why? So that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul comes in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. The idea behind weakness here, the, the, the word can be um, translated sickness, it can be translated disease, it can be translated weakness. Given what Paul has gone through, could be any one of those. There's great weakness in his body and his soul. And, and it's used, it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Corinthian letters. In 2 Corinthians 12, you don't need to turn there, um, Paul is writing to the Corinthians again, and he's talking about how he has this thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan that torments him. It just torments him, and he prays to God, God, would you please remove this? And, and, and every time God says, no, I'm not going to remove it, but know this, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. Um, I, I love that picture because many of us can relate to that. We, we find moments in our lives where we find difficulty and we don't know where we're going to turn. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know what we're going to do. God says, come to me. Let me make you strong in my power. When you're weak, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My, my power is perfect but it's not perfect in your strength, it's perfect in your weakness. Some years ago, I was, I was helping my daughter learn how to ride her bike. And one of the places that we like to go to ride a bike is, is the, um, the green space down in the South Park town. It's got a nice hill in there, which is you know, a little work to go up and a lot of fun coming down. But when you're learning how to ride a bike, the hill going up can be a little challenging. So I remember running beside her, and she was just like pedaling great, but you hit that long, sustained hill. 
And one of the things I would do is if she needed it, I'd just come alongside her and I'd put my hand on her back. I wouldn't like shove her. I would just gently push her while I ran along the side. She still pedaled, she kept going. But I was trying to lend her, loan her some of my strength so that she could get to the top of the hill. And she did an awesome job. Similarly, when we're going down the hill, I'm thinking, please don't crash, please don't crash, please don't crash, because you're learning how to ride a bike. And, and, and so if needed, if, if it got a little too out of hand, because she goes really fast on a bike, I would grab the seat of her bike and I would just barely hold it so that she could still pedal, she'd still be in control. But if she got too fast, I was there to just slow her down to where she was perfectly safe. When God comes alongside of us, whatever weakness we have becomes strength because God, with the working of his spirit, I think this is the way my mind works, just comes alongside of us and says, here, let me help you. Let me do this with and through you. Puts the hand on our back and helps us through that difficulty. Paul comes in weakness, but he also comes in fear. Now, fear is often comes as a result of conflict. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says this. He says, in fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. We had conflict on every side. We had, we had fear within. There was all this stuff pressing in, and the result of all the conflict is fear. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6 says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. One of the reasons I think it's so important that Paul, that the text records for us in verse 2 of Acts, is that he meets Aquila and Priscilla, is because he comes in fear. He comes in fear. And there's conflict all around him. But one of the things that God uses to combat fear in our life is people. Godly people who come alongside and say, you know, God is with you. It's going to be okay. You know, I'm here too. You're not in this alone. He also comes with much trembling or quivering is the other way you could translate it. Now, like I said, this isn't the way you'd send out a missionary, right? We're going to send you out weakness, fear, trembling. Awesome. You're ready. (laughs) But it's precisely the place where God meets Paul and says, Hey, Paul, keep doing what I've called you to do. You're going to feel as though you're not capable for this. And the truth is, is you are not. But my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is perfect when you are weak. All right. Um, A word that's used many times in these introductory verses of 1 Corinthians 2 is wisdom. He says, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. In verse 4, he says, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, so that your faith may not be based on men's wisdom. Throughout the course of um, the letters to the Corinthians, wisdom appears 16 times in the first two chapters. It's an important word. Wisdom is the word Sophia. If there's any uh, people here named Sophia, your name means wise. Um, And and it's the, the capacity to understand function accordingly. Um, Paul contrasts in his letter to the Corinthians wisdom of man, which he describes as foolishness, to the wisdom of God. Now, now wisdom was commonly known as the ability to speak in a very convincing way. Uh, Those of you with young children might understand this. Sometimes there's a child who, who will use words to sway the opinion of their siblings. 
Now, their argument, I, and I did this as a kid as best I could with my little brother. I, I, I tried to get him over to my side. No, John really wants to do this, <laughs> mom and dad. He really does, using words of wisdom. Now, the argument may not be entirely truthful, but if you're convincing, sometimes you can get your sibling to go along with you. Like my, my uncle, my mom tells a story about my uncle who was, who was um, about 10 years older than my aunt. And when he was older, and she was obviously younger, he was mowing the lawn. And, and he said, here, Beth, why don't you put your hand on the spark plug? I'm gonna start the lawnmower. <laughs> you know where it's going. He pulls, she gets shocked, it's a great time. Not really, it's a great time for everyone uh, named Bert. Um, but <laughs> he had wisdom, he had convincing words to get her to do something that he wanted her to do, but it wasn't necessarily the right thing. Paul contrasts the idea of human wisdom, which isn't necessarily the right thing to do, it's just something that can be convincing. He says, I don't come with wisdom, rather I come proclaiming the message of God with much fear, trembling, and weakness. But as I am proclaiming, I don't come with persuasive words, but with a powerful demonstration of the Spirit. Why? So that your faith is not based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I love the word for power here, because the word power can also be translated capability, might, or force, but on God's capability. I don't, I don't come with men's wisdom, I come with God's capability. I come with God's force, I come with God's might, God's power here. And what is that power? That power is Jesus and the Holy Spirit living through him. Paul understands in an ever-increasing way that even when he is weak, he is strong, not because of his own flesh, not because he can just muscle up and, and get it done, but because he has to rest and rely upon the God who hears, the God who goes before, the God who is behind. He is the God of angel armies. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you ever have times in your life when you feel powerless? Do you have times in your life when you don't know where to turn or what to do? That is a perfect opportunity for us to say, God, this is not in my strength. This has to be in yours. Now, now the truth is, is that God wants all of our lives to be aware increasingly that we are dependent upon him for power. But it's often in moments of weakness that we're reminded, God has to do this. I cannot. So Paul is reunited with his team. You can turn back with me to, to Acts 18. Paul is reunited with his team. He, he, after making these friends in Corinth, Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia in verse 5. Paul is occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, when he does this, and he continues to do this, the Jewish people resist, right? And, and, and they blaspheme. In, in other words, they utterly reject the message that Paul is proclaiming. In other words, they, they do not consider themselves worthy of the gift of eternal life that Paul is proclaiming. We want none of that. We reject it wholesale. And when they resist and blaspheme, Paul shakes his robe and he tells them, your blood is on your own heads, or on your own 
Yeah, your, your own heads. Now, now, he shakes his robe. That's a, that's a Jewish way of trying to separate um, that which is clean from that which is unclean. He's essentially showing them you are unclean by being in your sin still. You haven't come to faith in the one who can actually wash you clean. And so he shakes, shakes his robe, and he says, from now on, I will take the message to the Gentiles. And so Paul continues to preach to the Gentiles, but, but notice what happens. He, he leaves there, and he goes to the house of a man named Justus, a worshiper of God whose, <laughs> whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he leaves one house, and he goes right next door, and he's like, I'm going to preach here. And I, I don't think that that's Paul trying to um, shove it into their faces or something like that. I, I, I think that he sets up next door because there's a follower of Jesus next door, not desiring to antagonize his Jewish brothers, but he desires to still be a witness to them, even as he takes the message to the Gentiles. It's interesting to know. Uh, he goes next door to the synagogue in verse 7, and then it says in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And so Paul's continued ministry, even around the synagogue, with some of those same people, in addition to the, the Greeks, leads a man named Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, to come to faith in the Messiah. The Lord then appears to Paul in verse 9, and he says to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid. Remember, he, Paul comes in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. And, Paul, and the Lord comes to Paul and he says, Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. The Lord encourages Paul, Don't be afraid of people. Keep preaching. I have many people keep teaching the scriptures. One of the things that God is doing here is he's saying, Paul, opposition is still going to come. You've experienced opposition to the message. And, and the reality is, whether it's today or whether it was back then, there's always opposition to God's message. But there's, there's opposition that comes. And Paul is dragged before the Bema seat in Corinth. David, there we go. So you see the Acrocorp, the big 1,900-foot hill up at the top there. You can kind of see remnants of the temple up there. In the bottom of your screen is the Bema seat, or the judgment seat in Corinth. And um, in, in Corinth, that's where you would go to have matters judged by whoever was the leader, the, the Roman authority there. So they come before Galileo, who was proconsul of Achaic. And, and the Jews, it says... In verse 12, make a united attack against Paul. There is great opposition. They bring him to the judge's bench, to the Bema seat. And this man, they claim, persuades people or seduces people, is the other way you could translate that, to worship God contrary to the law. And, and the inference here is not the Roman law necessarily, but to the law of Moses. And the reason we know that is because Paul's about to speak. He's about to give his defense. And we've heard this defense before. Um, but Galileo says to the Jews, if it were a matter of a crime or moral evil, it would, be it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about your words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. So by doing this, he's not getting involved in the rift that was growing between the Jewish believers in Jesus and the Jewish people. 
You know, the, the, the rift is great. We see it in Thessaloniki, we see it in Berea. There's great uh, headbutting between these two groups because when you add Jesus to all of this, it changes a lot of things. God comes to Paul and he says, keep preaching, I have many people in the city. And as, and as Paul goes before the pro-council, the pro-council uh, hears the initial complaint, dismisses it because it's a Jewish matter. He says, it's not my responsibility to judge. And, and then they beat up Sosthenes. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting end of this. Here's kind of a recap for where we've been. Rabbi Paul arrives in Corinth, a city with immense spiritual problems. He's broken, he's beaten down, and he is torn down. He has very little left to give. He's been driven out of Thessaloniki, Berea, from Philippi, Thessaloniki, Berea. His message is largely ignored in Athens. He's alone, and God begins to rebuild him. He begins to rebuild him during his ministry in Corinth. He builds him through a couple of different ways. He builds him through people. Aquila, Priscilla. He, he rebuilds him through just a reminder of his purpose to preach and testify the goodness of the Lord and who Jesus the Messiah is. And the result in verses 4 through 8 is that many come to the Lord. He's reunited with his team. If you've ever worked with people closely and then you're separated for some time, you can feel alone after a while. When you're reunited, you're like, the team is back together. We can go. God reunites Silas and Timothy with him, and he continues to give him a vision here that even though there would be opposition to the message of the gospel, even though there will be threats again by the Jewish leaders, he tells Paul, look, I know the opposition is going to be tough. Keep preaching. I have many people in the city. I will protect you. In the city of Corinth, Paul stays 18 months, serving, ministering, preaching, building tents, helping these Corinthians. And if you go and you read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you find they're a hot mess. There's a lot of things that Paul has to address in their lives of spiritual condition. And probably the biggest thing he has to address in their lives is their selfishness. How they want something a certain way, whether they're rich and they want something a certain way, they're poor, they want something a certain way. They, they, they want to live in their old patterns of life. He calls them constantly in to what it doesn't look like to be gospel-centered people in a very pagan culture. And he calls them and he calls them and he calls them over 18 months. And even after that, through the letters that go back and forth. So, knowing this... <laughs> How do we apply the story for us today? Well, a couple of things, and, and you might have more, but here's one. The mission that God calls you to, stay true to it. Stay true to the mission. Our mission here at first is to know Christ and to make him known. We believe that that kind of encompasses what the scriptures say about what our lives should be about. To love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. To know Christ, to make him known. To, to know Christ means not to just have knowledge about him, but also to have intimate relationship with him. So that we grow in love with God. But as we stay true to the mission, I think the other thing Paul illustrates for us is to be faithful in our calling. 
my calling is different than it was 10 years ago. It just kind of morphs, and maybe yours is too. Maybe you're in a different season of life, but be faithful to what God has called you to. Sometimes God will call you to things, oftentimes God will call you to things that you in and of yourself are not capable to do. But be faithful to your calling. Be prayerful, be mindful. Students, as some of you get ready to go out to college, God is going to continue to reveal his will for you in your life throughout the course of time. Take a deep breath, it will be okay. Be faithful, number one, to the mission of knowing Christ and making him known. But as God reveals his calling upon your life, be true and be faithful to that calling wherever and whatever that is. Number three, recognize that God loves to use weakness for his glory. Weakness is something that is often looked down upon today. We, we don't look at the weak person and say, man, I want them on my team. You know, I, was, I was a kid who didn't get picked first to kickball or dodgeball because I wasn't that good at it, which was fine. I, I, I was okay with it most of the time. I, this leg wasn't great for kicking, apparently. When God looks at people, he doesn't look at whether they're weak or they're strong. He says, mm, I have made you, I have formed you, I can use you. You will have a weakness here, I will use that weakness. In fact, it's actually through that weakness that I'm going to be shown to be strong in your life. Recognize that God loves to use weakness for his glory. And number four, this is a hard one for me at least. Trust God's perfect provision. Trust God's perfect provision. In an age where we want more in order to feel secure, trust God's perfect provision. Sometimes this, this provision comes through resources. Um, the Church of Philippi will actually send financial resources down to Paul so that Paul can spend more of his time teaching the Word. Um, but that's one way that God provides. Another way God provides is through people. God, God gives provision through godly people and encouragers to come alongside of you when you are down. Um, which leads to this. Sometimes it's really difficult to let people into our lives. Sometimes in order for people to encourage us, it's helpful for them to know what's going on in the real self. Now, I understand we can't be always fully honest with everyone. We will have relationships that are closer with some people than they are with others. But do you have people in your life who know the real you? Who can come alongside you and say, you know, I, I know you're going through this. Can I just encourage you to keep going on? Can, can I encourage you that God is with you in the midst of this? I, I love that Paul experiences Aquila and Priscilla in verse 2. Because I can only imagine the conversations they had. Oh yeah, you were kicked out of there? Hey, we were kicked out of here. We've got that together. Oh yeah, you have this Jewish background. Yeah, Jesus, let's talk about him. Yeah, this culture is very Corinthian. It, it's, it's very set on self. How do we be Christ here and now? Can you just imagine the conversations they had? Can you imagine how Aquila and Priscilla may have come alongside and said, Paul, it's okay to be weak, it's okay to be fearful, and it's okay to not know what's next. God is with you. 
would you just for a moment consider where are you at in your life today? As you sit here on Sunday morning, July 21, do you find yourself in an area of weakness? God wants to be your strength. Do, do you find yourself in an area of fear? God wants to be your peace. Peace is, after all, a product of the Holy Spirit. Do you find yourself maybe in a good spot? Well, let me encourage you with this. There are people around you who will be hurting this week. Maybe some of them even in this room. Ask God for spiritual wisdom to know, God, who can I encourage today with the message of Jesus? Who, who can I come alongside and say, it's going to be okay? God is with you. We don't know what the future holds, but God's power is perfect even in your weakness. Would you pray with me, please? God, some of us come in weakness today. Some of us come dealing with fear of one kind or another. Some of us, God, come even trembling. And yet, God, in our weakness, your grace is sufficient for us. Your power, God, is made perfect in our weakness. When we are weak, God, you are strong. And we hang all of our lives on these truths from your word. God, I pray for the discouraged, that you would encourage them. Encourage them through the, the reading of your word. Encourage them through music that can lift the soul. God, encourage them through a brother or sister coming alongside of them to say, it's going to be okay. God is with you. You have no need to fear. God, we, we each will face opposition, if not today, maybe tomorrow. In those moments of opposition, God, remind us of your presence. I'm amazed, God, how you go before Paul to work in the lives of rulers and of judges to further your kingdom. God, we trust that you would continue to have your kingdom come on this earth, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, meet us today with sufficient needs, our daily bread. God, give us forgiveness for one another, as you also have forgiven us in Christ. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, from the power of the adversary in our lives. God, help us to stand strong in Christ. Because God, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.